Disasters have taken place throughout history. Volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, tsunamis. They can destroy civilizations and even change the environment for years to come. Then there are those disasters that aren't so-called acts of God. Some disasters are far from natural. Editing Nash here. Before we get going with the introduction, we had something that made us have giggle fits come up after recording and had to address it. A listener called Pose Raven messaged and said he'd gotten his mom listening to the podcast and a question arose regarding something I say in the intro, specifically when I reference woo-woo. The exact quote was, got my mom to start listening. After 11 episodes, she asks, what the fuck does woo-woo mean? I have never laughed so hard. We also laughed hard. So shout out to Raven's mom, and here is your answer, because perhaps others are wondering as well. I'm a skeptic. I'm not a member of any society or club or something. I just mean to say it's my default mentality when confronted with things that appear to be unreal and beyond comprehension. And basically, all skeptic means is you rule out the possible before moving on to the seemingly impossible in a given situation. You don't assume something amazing is unexplainable. You don't default to thinking the situation must mean something otherworldly or mystical or whatever is at play. Okay, so there was a famous skeptic named James Randi. He just died last year, and he actually may be worth doing an episode on one day. Fascinating guy. For instance, one thing he did is that he offered, and I believe his foundation does to this day, substantial monetary awards for anyone who can prove under scientific controls that their skills or their equipment or whatever is legit. Think psychics and people who say they can move things with their minds and whatnot. And while he may not be the inventor of the term woo-woo, he certainly used it a lot and it caught on in skeptic circles. It's admittedly flippant and dismissive of people who always lean into aliens or spirits or it's in the stars type stuff. And frankly, I love it. Being me, though, I have to give you a source and a quote-unquote official definition. According to the Rational Wiki, and I know, I know, a wiki, but they cite good sources, so I'll link you in show notes, but here's the summation they give of woo. Woo, also called woo-woo, is a term for pseudoscientific explanations that share certain common characteristics. Woo is understood specifically as dressing itself in the trappings of science while involving unscientific concepts such as anecdotal evidence and sciency sounding words. Woo is used to blind or distract an audience from a real explanation or to discourage people from delving deeper into the subject to find a more realistic explanation. The term implies a lack of either intelligence or sincerity on the part of the person or concepts so described. Woo-woo meisters seek people's admiration, falsely promising them miraculous and easily understandable knowledge. They go on to say, Woo generally contains most of the following characteristics. As mentioned, anecdotal evidence, meaning testimonies are given more weight than actual facts and studies, and pseudoscience, meaning giving things scientific-sounding names and scientific-sounding reasons. Panacea, meaning a simplistic idea that purports to be a universal, one-shot answer to a complicated issue. Of course, supernatural, paranormal, and or preternatural involvement in a situation. Persecution complexes, meaning the woo peddlers act as if everybody from the government to scientists are out to shut them up because they've discovered the truth, blah, blah, blah. And this last one's my favorite. 
a hypothesis that remains virtually unchanged for years despite changes in the evidence, which you find that all around, people citing sources from years and years ago to back their claims. I mean, in science, things are discovered all the time. Same with history. An archaeologist can uncover something tomorrow that rewrites things we knew as indisputable fact today. And that, dear Raven's mom, is a basic roundup of woo. It's the stuff that makes you roll your eyes and then squint and then tilt your head and go, really? All right, on to the episode. Welcome to You Totally Made That Up. This is a history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, nuttiest stories from yesteryear. Ones that sound like someone must have totally made them up. But they're all true, and we especially like the ones that have supernatural, paranormal, woo-woo elements, so those parts may only be true to the people who lived them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes, though. We want dates and names and all the facts that we can find. Basically, we like the weirdest and strangest stories from history. And I am Nash. And I am Tiff. We are your hosts. We are not historians. We are merely researching and presenting you stories in a delightful way. And we are also not podcasters who simply read from Wikipedia and giggle. If that is your jam, we are not for you. But please do give us a go anyhow. Don't forget to keep listening after the episode's over to hear the outro, which will tell you how to get hold of us, where to find us on social media. And we love hearing from you. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to leave a rating and or review on your platform of choice. And thank you so much to all of you who have already done so. We appreciate you. Welcome back for part two of Disasters That Didn't Have to Happen. I got a little worked up in the first part, but I'm over it. I'm done being mad. For now. Oh, good. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Let's talk a little bit more about a couple other people that just didn't want to get their jobs done, right? (laughs) And I don't want to alarm anyone, but here's the truth, you guys. And I say you guys. I hope I'm not offending anybody when I'm like you guys, because I mean that as in everybody. Guys, gals. That's a very Um, northern thing, too. Use guys. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, use guys. Just like uh, southern. Well, everyone across the globe practically in every region has adapted y'all but that's a southern thing sorry to break everybody's <laughs> hearts it just is but it's same same difference i just i noticed i've been saying it a lot and so i just wanted to address that just whatever okay okay well send us an email i'll be sure to glance at it before <laughs> i delete it <laughs> all right you guys the earth is on fire and I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being silly. There is just, there's so much fire all over the earth right now. It's happening. But I'm going to talk about mostly one specific fire that really just, just touches the surface of this whole situation. All right. So here we go. First, let's talk about coal and how it's formed within the earth. Now, we all know of its existence because it's used for energy, but I don't know if most of us really appreciate how it came to be unless you study geology. So some cool science facts are up ahead here. Coal forms when plant matter is condensed over a long, long period of time, and the conditions for it to form must be very specific. Think like swamplands. 
you've got plant matter that falls into the water, which is standing water, so you're not getting that flow of oxygen and movement that would lead to decay. All that carbon just sits there, getting more and more compacted as more matter falls and the weight of the water keeps it down. And it takes a good 10 feet of this plant matter to accumulate into one foot of coal. So you need this to happen repeatedly under very specific conditions where the water level remains consistent with the amount of debris that's settling inside it. It's just, wow. The planet is just crazy sometimes with how things work out. You've got thousands of years of this buildup, and then you've got several hundred feet of this pressed carbon forming what's called a coal seam. The place on Earth with the largest coal reserves is the United States. And I'll be focusing specifically on the mines in Pennsylvania. Quoting one source, Pennsylvania has been home to coal mining for more than 200 years and is the fourth largest coal-producing state in the nation and the only state that produces anthracite coal. So what is anthracite coal? Well, in the ranking of types of coal, anthracite rates the highest. It contains the highest percentage of carbon, some 86% or higher, therefore containing the most energy. And it's actually kind of pretty to look at. It looks more like a rock. It's not like those messy lumps that you might imagine. Anthracite is more like a shiny, sharp black rock. It's got a metallic sheen and sometimes a luster. It can actually be polished and handled because it doesn't give off a nasty coal residue. Coal seams are kind of unique around the world because of the formation process. And then we've got anthracite coal, which is also kind of rare. So wowza, Pennsylvania, you've got a nice hearty seam of it right there beneath the surface. Congratulations. And uh, hey, coal's a pretty popular power and energy source. So boom. There's your coal industry in the United States, at least on the east. The land that Centralia is located on was purchased from Native Americans back in the 1760s. Purchased? (laughs) That always makes me uncomfortable. The coal wasn't noted until ownership had passed through a few hands, and it ended up owned by Stephen Girard sometime after 1798. The name of the town changed a couple times, too, until it became Centralia in 1865. At that point, the land was owned by Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company, and the city itself was being settled and laid out by engineer. Hey, there's an engineer at least. <laughs> just, just thank God for small favors. I mean. <laughs> we, we got little things here. Okay. By engineer Alexander Ray. Now, several mines had already been opened up by then. Five were open and operating in 1865, and the work entails... Well, it kind of depends on what type of mining is being done. And I'm not going to go into all of the details and specifics of different types of mining practices. I'm just going to focus on the kind that matters for the story, which is strip and open pit mining. They are types of surface mining and the preferred method when coal rests closer to the surface. One source noted about 200 feet or 61 meters from the surface. So what they do is they clear out the topsoil, the top layers of earth with bulldozers, explosives, or both until they have access to the coal. Open pit mining does the same, except that the mining company removes the top layers of earth, vegetation, etc., and end up digging a pit or a quarry, and then they dig tunnels to access the coal from there. All right, so we've got the mining operations set up, and Centralia is being established, which it was actually incorporated in 1866. And at this point, it also becomes a prime location for some Irish gang activity. What? (laughs) This is, it does connect, I promise. The Molly Maguires were a secret society, not-so-secret society, that was actually an activist group that was focused on unionizing and improving working conditions for miners and mining communities. They were active in Ireland, obviously, and into the United States when immigration was going on. 
And of course, they took such an interest in this because of the high number of immigrants working in the mines. These immigrants were paid low wages compared to other American workers and were subjected to the harsh conditions within the mines. You know, aside from the hard physical labor of using pickaxes to mine the coal, you've got the weather to deal with, poor ventilation, exposure to gases like methane, fires, floods, collapse. I mean, the list goes on and on, and miners ranged in age from seven up. So the Molly Maguires were busy trying to help raise wages, improve conditions, and kind of similar to your story, they were a little anarchist at times, because <laughs> I know that, you know, your molasses distilleries were having a few issues with people causing problems. Yeah, and I mean, I'd, I'd get kind of anarchist, too, if seven-year-olds are working in mines. So, you know, I kind of, I feel them. I feel them. Yeah, I don't right? think they should go blowing shit up and killing people, but good on them for standing up for what's right. Yeah. Now, unfortunately here, they did take it up those couple notches, and they actually allegedly murdered the founder, Alexander Ray. Well, okay, so I retract my good <laughs> on him. You know, they had the spirit, right? That, lots of spirit. They had the spirit. It, they, they meant well, <laughs> in, in an interesting way. They also assaulted a number of city officials and even a priest. And the legend about that goes that the priest, Father Daniel McDermott, in a very unpriestlike manner, then cursed the land in retaliation for his attack. <laughs> I just had to, I cracked up at that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, is that what this has been this whole time? Where were Ed and Lorraine on this one? Oh yeah, call the Warrens. That's a great way to spend taxpayer money. Ugh, missed opportunity. All right, now the Molly McGuire members that were found guilty of murder and attacks were put to death. And then after that, their group wasn't really active. So they were pretty much done by about 1877 in the area. But of course, they did operate elsewhere. So feel free to look into that if you so choose. It is kind of interesting. Now, peak population in Centralia was 2,761 in the year 1890. They had seven churches, five hotels, 27 saloons. <laughs> you damn right. Two theaters, a bank, a post office and 14 general and grocery stores. It's a busy little spot. And they stayed busy thanks to all that anthracite and the mines and the desire for it. Coal did pretty well during the Civil War, and with the expanding population and all the industries, it continued to do well. It was also important to the United States government. However, production began to slow in the 20th century because other sources of energy started to become more popular, things like petroleum and natural gas. Also not helping the situation was the stock market crash in 1929, which led to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company closing down five mines that they operated in Centralia. They were abandoned, and many people started to go in and mine on their own, doing what was called bootleg mining. This led to a number of different dangers because they would mine some of the columns of coal that were left as support structures and led to tunnels collapsing. And this leads to problems down the road when they attempt to seal up the abandoned mines. All right. So now the coal industry is slowing down. The population of Centralia is down to about 1,986 by the year 1950, as people had to move for work, or a number of them had been lost in World War II. The city council for Centralia saw an opportunity, and they were able to secure the rights to the land so that they were able to profit from any future mining production. It seems like a smart move, but you'll see how they kind of got things a little bit twisted there. By 1962, the population was down to about 1,400, 
there were about 23 to 30 working mines with up to about 200 workers taking care of all of the business there. There are cases where, you know, surface mines were required to backfill the land, replacing and returning all of the removed topsoil to where it was and helping to restore the land, but that wasn't really happening in Centralia. And just like in the show Parks and Recreation, which is one of my favorites and never fails to make me laugh, they had a pit and people started to use it as a garbage dump. And so happened in Centralia. They had eight different pits that were being used as garbage dumps. Now the city decided, you know what? Let's try and designate one as the official garbage pit. Can can we try to do this? Because we're having problems with odor and we're having problems with rats and, you know, just the nastiness that happens when there's garbage just chilling in your town. So they settled on a pit that was by Old Fellow Cemetery. It was about 300 feet wide, 75 feet long, and it was about 50 feet deep, which is 91 by 23 and 15 meters. This seemed like the best choice, and this was actually okay. Back in 1956, the state of Pennsylvania had recognized that the use of old mining pits as garbage dumps was becoming kind of a problem, and that was because of fires. Like, what? So they started to have regulations in place to try to prevent future issues. This included lining the pit with incombustible material to prevent the spread of fire into the mine shafts. They were also required to be inspected regularly to make sure that the lining was intact. Now we meet George Segaritis, and I hope I pronounced his last name correctly. If not, I guess, I don't know, someone tell me. I'm trying my best. You're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> he is a regional landfill inspector who worked for the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries. He came and looked at the chosen pit in Centralia, and he was like, all right, I do have some concerns. There are a couple holes in the wall and in the floor. And often those holes cut through into the mines underneath. So he informs Joseph Tai, a Centralia councilman, that the pit would require filling with this incombustible material. It's like, hey, you got to take care of these holes. But otherwise, sure, go for it. Make this your dumping ground. So let me get this straight. Essentially, this small town, would it be fair to say that the entirety of it underneath it is a bunch of coal. Yeah. Okay, because I just, I was, in my mind, I'm thinking, so put the freaking dump pit somewhere else. But that's, okay, so that's all I want to be clear on. There really was nowhere that wasn't at least butting up against, if not totally on top of coal. Right. Right? Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure, because I just, <laughs> I'm like, move the damn pit. I don't know. Okay, but, uh, all right, carry on. Sorry. That's okay. So here we are in 1962. Memorial Day is fast approaching, and this little town is getting ready to hold some activities for the day. Now remember, they've been around, and they've been through the Civil War, World War I, and World War II, so they've got some fallen soldiers to commemorate. The city council wants to take care of some of the garbage before this big day. So they have five members of the volunteer fire department go to the dump and set a controlled fire to get rid of some of the waste. Now, this is not a sanctioned fire. It's not official uh, <laughs> because it's not an approved way to get rid of trash in these landfills. And it's not officially on the town record. But firefighters and council members have supported the story after the fact. This is something that they had done before. Some people had said that there were weekly fires, weekly garbage burns. But this time it didn't go so well. So Sunday, May 27th, 1962, they lit the fire. 
They let it burn for a little bit, then they douse it to put it out. All right, wipe your hands, job's done. Go enjoy your Memorial Day. But on Tuesday, May 29th, there's a problem when smoke and flames are found by George Jones, a cemetery trustee. He had gone out to check on some things and discovered that big problem. So once again, the firefighters show up. They spend a couple hours dousing the area with water. Again, all right, that's it. And that's the only time. (laughs) Wait, wait. I get that it's a small town. I do. I'm going to say that probably multiple times. But they put the landfill next to the cemetery? Yep. (laughs) Empty KFC buckets and worn out undies next to Mama and Papa? Yep. And then, you know, and this is a little bit later on in the story, but it became kind of a joke later because of the way the fire burned that you could put somebody in the cemetery and you get a cremation for free. For free, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, they're dead. They ain't going to worry about the smell. <laughs> that, is that the logic? I don't, oh my God. All right. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to say they had the best plans throughout this city council, okay? Just, ugh. So we had the fire on May 29th. And then in June, some more flames start up again within this landfill. And this time, the firefighters are, like, determined to get this fire taken care of. So they set up a hose, but they also rent a bulldozer so that they could stir up the garbage and try and find whatever the hotspot area is where they could get it put out. And, oh, they, they found something bad, Nash. Oh, I hope it's a gateway to hell. After a few days of doing this with the garbage and finding it still burning, They dozed over one area, moving it off the wall of the pit. And there, instead of the mandated lighting of incombustible material, was a hole about 15 feet wide and several feet high. And that hole led right down into those anthracite mines. Now, it's like, well, we're going to move stuff around and try to figure out what's keeping this thing stoked. Hey, Earl, Jim Bob, you reckon it's because you're sitting on coal? Do you think? Maybe? Oh, my God. Just, all right. I mean, if it keeps reigniting, that's my point. Mm -hmm. If it was just one time, I'd think, Mm -hmm. okay, well, we didn't hose it down well enough. Let's go. But we're talking like now we're at about the third time that they've had to go back out to this same thing. Duh. Duh. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this, to me, this is not a hindsight is 2020 situation. This is, this is big duh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my Lord. Now, there were some people who were trying to claim that this was actually an old fire, an old mine fire, you know, that had thought to have been put out and had actually smoldered for a long time and just now reignited or that. No, and grew claws and clawed its way through the earth and into Mm a. Yeah. Okay, sure. That's what fire does. No. So, no, it's uh, it's not going well. And those people that were claiming that it was actually an older fire, nope, that doesn't really track. In late June, a resident has some concerns, and he sends a letter to the Secretary of Mines. And he tries to reach out to George Segaritis, the previously mentioned landfill inspector who had concerns about those holes, but he's on vacation. Now his superior opens this letter, and he gets back to the Secretary of Mines and informs him that he already had been phoned about the fire, They were told to give it that good stir and hose it down and that the fire had been extinguished. All right. If we're keeping track, (laughs) you know, we've already got the improper lining of the mine. Now we've got quite a miscommunication here. 
because he's going on very old information when this concerned resident was letting him know about some new fire issues. And now we're in July, and the city council calls a gentleman named Clarence Kashner, the president of the Independent Miners, Breakers, and Truckers. He takes a look at the hole, and he's like, yeah, there's definitely a problem here. He calls another engineer. Hey, a couple engineers already. They're, they're trying. Some people. <laughs> some people are trying. Clarify that. Listen, we'll take it. Now, he tells this engineer what's going on, and the guy offers to bring up some equipment to dig out the problem and stop the fire for $175. It's a good deal, right? Do it right now. Cut the man a check. But he says that he's going to have to go through, quote, some channels, and that he was sorry, but there was nothing he could do. What in the blue hell is that supposed to mean? Never mind. It doesn't matter. Not like time is of the essence or anything. So in the meantime, people are still tossing garbage into this pit. Oh, my snappy God. Like, (laughs) just keep throwing that fuel on that fire. (laughs) And finally, the inspector, George, makes his way over to see what's going on. And he's surprised and he's angry to find smoke rising from this pit. He starts making some calls, sending some letters, asking for testing of gases that are coming from the pit and for aid in putting out the fire which he is told by city council that started spontaneously on June 25th. Sure. (laughs) So now let me just tell you a little bit about how this coal burns. Spontaneous combustion is very possible and does happen, typically with some of those lower-ranked soft coals. And according to the Smithsonian, at temperatures as low as 104 degrees Fahrenheit, lightning or brush fire can also ignite soft coal. The fires burn downward, acquiring air through fissures in rock and microscopic spaces between grains of dirt. An underground fire may smolder for years or even decades without showing signs on the surface. Eventually, however, in a process called subsidence, burning subterranean coal turns to ash, creating huge underground voids and causing overlying ground to crack and collapse, allowing more air in, which fans more fire. There we go. And then we've got that anthracite, that shiny, hard, clean-burning, high-BTU coal in those coal beds, which miners had gone through and really created lots of little mazes with tunnels and shafts. And then they had gone at the coal from the surface with that strip mining. But obviously, they never got all of it. So now we've got this debris. We've got leftover coal. We've got the connected airways. It's just a dream location for fire. An anthracite burns extremely hot. It can burn up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 482 Celsius. It's really ideal to be used in the metals industry. It burns very slowly because of how dense the coal is and can be quite hard to ignite. So mine fires in the past were easier to put out, but this one, well, it kindled and it kind of burned for a while before anyone even started to try to do anything about it. And when they finally started doing stuff about it, it was a very, very slow response. It's noted in the book Fire Underground by David DeCock that there just simply weren't agencies that existed to assist in this particular type of problem. Most of the mining agencies were more focused on miner safety or researching mining methods. Private mining companies often fought the fires themselves until they went out of business and it would fall to the municipalities. But these mines, many were already abandoned. They had no workers. The land was already owned by the city. And federal assistance was really shitty, too. Limited to $500,000 per year and only available if the fire is in an active mine and threatening a sufficient quantity of coal reserves. You know what's not noted in that? Communities? Cities? Yep. (laughs) Yep. What about the people? 
Well, and now that I've interrupted you, okay, so I take back what I said. I'm picturing this in my head. So it is possible that something was already brewing under there, like something subtle. Then they dig the pit and then, yeah. So, okay, so I retract. That could be plausible, but the point still remains. If they had lined it properly, oxygen couldn't have gotten, the fire would have had nowhere to creep up is the point. So even if that was the source and not the burning of the trash. Okay, just to make that clear, I want to be thorough and I want to make it also clear that, again, I don't support the anarchists. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I don't think that that little children should have been trotting down into mines like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But so, okay, I gotcha. I'm tracking with you. Okay. So, With that federal guideline, Centralia doesn't apply because they still had those active mines and the coal reserves weren't an issue at that point. Now we're at August 6th, 1962. Another meeting is called about the fire, this time with some of the local coal companies. No bureaucrats were allowed. And they're trying to think of how to handle this. They're like, all right, let's try and get this under control. We don't want to deal with the government. We can do this. And one local miner named Alonzo Sanchez who owns some equipment and does some strip mining, offers to dig out the fire free of charge or at least at minimal cost to anyone. He only asks that any coal that he pulls out in the process, he gets to keep. Cool. Sure, you know, this guy wants to do the work. One dude, or does he have a crew? Do we know? Well, it's just him, you know, that's named. Maybe he's got a couple workers that want to help. <laughs> I, hope. You know, I, I don't know. And they say sure, right? They say sure? No. Oh, no. they don't. They don't. Mm -mm. Instead, they decide that they do need to work with the state government and that the job needs to go out to bids. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, My sneaking suspicion is this has to do with money because they were like, oh, but he could be taking out a whole bunch of coal. No, he wouldn't. A, I don't think he would have succeeded just being one dude. And B, how much coal could one dude possibly collect? Oh, my God. Just Plus, at this point, I mean, it was already kind of losing value losing revenue it wasn't yeah. as a business whatever whatever this is stu- this is just, this whole thing is stupidity on parade and and i've never understood people like the option is there to have the big guns come in the government avail yourself of this opportunity make them do what we have hired them to do we are the employers of these government we paid their salaries like if it's mm-hmm. there take it do it mm-hmm. i don't Yeah. Well, you know, just like earlier when that guy was like, hey, can you do this for $175? And he's like, yeah, but I got to do some paperwork first. It's just kind of one thing after another. So they decide the job needs to go out to bids. August 9th, state inspectors who had been monitoring CO2 gas levels in the mine determined that there are deadly levels now being emitted and they order the closure of all Centralia mines. (laughs) Welcome back, carbon dioxide. You've been the star of these episodes. So it's mid-August and an agreement is met. The state agreeing to a contract with a company for $20,000 to dig out the fire. Could have saved that $20,000, let that other guy do it, but whatever. They are, however, not allowed to do any exploratory digging to find out the actual location of the fire within the mines, and they must rely on plans drawn by the engineers. I, I don't know what to say about some of these actions. There was this idea going around that it's not a big fire. 
and that the exploratory digging was just going to drag out the process. So nah, just go in there and start digging and just take care of it. But of course, as soon as they bust into the mine, they also allow a whole bunch of fresh oxygen in there, which feeds the fire. Other ideas for stopping the growth of the fire, instead of digging it out, is to kind of dig around and trap it. But by the time they excavated the land where they planned to dig this trench, the fire had already grown beyond that. Also, part of that state contract kept the contractor from working for more than eight hours a day, five days a week. He wasn't allowed to work on holidays. And coming up next was Labor Day. So he had a nice long five-day weekend. There's no, there's just no hustle. And of course, you know, we've got the benefit of knowing how this plays out and knowing that there's a lot more that could have and should have been done. But I just cannot understand the mindset of standing around a hole that's on fire and walking away being like, have a good long weekend. I'm going to go barbecue. Um, yeah, this is when you need to have somebody way high up step in and go, this is an emergency. For right now, we're going to use whatever executive action power that they have to declare a state of emergency. I mean, that's why it's called a state of emergency. You got to start bending rules or disregarding the standards that are there in order to. So it's like, yes, we get it that he's not that the state employees. So guess what? We're going to hire in outside. We're going to privately contract. Mm -hmm. And we'll pay for it, but we're going to privately contract and have people working around the clock until this is solved. I'm with you. It's, it's, it even sounds like a metaphor. You don't walk away from a burning, an out of control burning <laughs> fire. But in this case, it's the literal truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the meantime, the city council does jack shit. It's out of their hands being handled by the state. So they just keep on doing their thing. And it's actually noted that over the next two years, not once is the fire mentioned in the city council minutes. Yeah, because I'm sure no concerned townspeople were bringing it up. Like, Mr. Speaker, or whatever the shit your title is, we've lost another dog down the pit to hell. <sighs> I guess, I don't know. It's in somebody else's hands, so don't think about it. Later in 1962, they try pumping slurry into the mine, which is a mixture of water and crushed rocks in an attempt to put out the fire. And all they really did was make a bunch of steam. Oh, how nice. They made a spa. And that they didn't have enough material. Uh, of course they didn't. The cost for this came in at about $42,000. And then by the next year, the fire had spread about 700 feet from the dump. And the cost of possibly trying to build the trench was being brought up again while the state government was reducing funding to the mining department. And the representatives for the region in Congress and Senate were more focused on agriculture and didn't really seem to understand the problems with mining and the fires. 1963, they try the trench again, and again, it fails. Now, throughout the decade, there would eventually be a bill passed in the federal government that would provide more assistance and funding for the fires. But at that point, it was more about controlling the fires rather than extinguishing them. And yes, I said fires, plural. As of 2018, there were 38 active coal mine fires in Pennsylvania alone. Back in 1964, when they were working on this legislation, there were 27 known coal mine fires. So I'm going to backtrack just a little bit to give some more history and scope. There is actually another fire that's been burning since 1915, known as the Laurel Run Fire. This one was ignited when a miner left his lamp behind, and it set fire to the wood support beam that it was hanging on. There's a big difference, though, in these fires. The actions taken. At the Laurel Fire, they actually dug it out, and they were able to continue mining in that spot for another six years until they did find that the fire had been smoldering. 
They worked on containment for almost 30 years until finally the whole mining operation there had to stop in 1957. But aside from the fire area, the mining operation had continued. And then within the next decade after 1957, the residents of the town were bought out of their properties and relocated. That fire still burns, but they were able to contain the spread with that quick action, and actually the trench did work there. Now, the reason that the trench worked at the Laurel Run fire was because it had more of a singular direction to go in, whereas the Centralia mines spread out in four different strips and went in multiple directions. Centralia, the city itself, was also closer to the mines, which meant that when mine subsidence occurred, it was more likely to affect the buildings and roads. Okay. So we're back in Centralia. It's 1965. They knew things were getting out of hand and that they needed to do some more work. They had a two-phase plan, which included sealing up the landfill. How had that not been done yet? I don't know. Buying out property owners. And then again, trying the trench. But the work kept getting put off until they had all the land cleared for the trench area and beyond. And this process dragged on for another year. Property owners didn't want to get rid of their land because they had no idea of the real danger that they were in. Kind of like the Titanic, everyone downplayed the fire and it was never really released to the public and the citizens of Centralia exactly what was going on behind the scenes. City council kept it very hush-hush. But eventually they did get the land that they had wanted for this trench, but then the mining bureau started putting off the work. Now, by this time, the cost of the project had exceeded $2 million. And by the time the work got going in 1967, the fire was even further than they had planned. So once again, that trench is not going to work. When they started digging, they found that the fire had also reached a depth of some 250 feet, which they hadn't anticipated. And then that raised the estimated cost for the project up to $4.5 million. At this point, it's decided that the project is just too costly. They determined that the real estate that they were trying to protect was worth only about 500000 so to spend $5 million on it just didn't make sense for the budget. Now, the residents were starting to feel some of the effects from the fires. They could actually see the gases rising. They were starting to get headaches. They were starting to feel nauseous. You know, <laughs> those problems you have where there's like CO2 poisoning. Oh, do you think? Yeah, it's not going well. And there were some more attempts in the meantime to try to find the true extent of the fire and, again, to try to slow the burn, but none of it worked. In the 70s, more residents started to get concerned about what was going on because the ground could actually feel hot to the touch. A gas station owner found the head. No, I'm sorry. That, that just, <laughs> the ground is hot. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you tell these people the absolute truth? I would immediately sell. I mean, I wouldn't take a price that wasn't fair, but I would immediately sell. Mm -hmm. So why on earth wouldn't they just tell them? I don't, this, this whole thing boggles my mind. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's, a, it's this whole, yeah. While reading and doing research, I was like, and then this happened and they still didn't get it taken care of. And then this, and then it was just a series of events that, because people wanted to play games <laughs> or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So the ground felt hot to the touch. The gas station owner found that his gasoline reserves had been heated to over 125 degrees. Gases were starting to be detected inside of homes and other buildings. And now the residents are like, this is bad. This is really bad. 
and they started calling for more federal aid and attention to the problem. Now? Now they start calling for the federal aid. Good night. This is when the news finally picked up on what was going on. Because, like I said, I mean, there were lots of mine fires. It was, I don't want to say it's common, but it's like, yeah, that happens. But they're starting to realize, no, this is actually affecting quality of life. And this sounds like it could be a serious problem. Exactly. And I do get that, that this was something that was to a degree unavoidable in mines. You'd have these occur. But this is literally trying to crawl up and out. Right, right. It wasn't until the start of the 1980s, it got to a point that the fire was visible on the surface and readings measured the fire burning at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. That is right at about 650 degrees Celsius, priced on a cracker. In 1981, a 12-year-old boy was cutting across some lawns when he fell into a sinkhole that suddenly appeared. Nightmare. Absolute nightmare. He managed to grab onto a tree root, and his cousin found him and helped him out. But that also brought more attention to many of the residents that the town was kind of crumbling and burning underneath them. By the end of 1981, 29 families had qualified for a buyout and relocation, and then a new examination of the scope of the fire was done. This time, the estimate cost to excavate the fire would be about $660 million. Yeah, because this is what happens when you let things go. Car repair, your teeth. Ah, it's just so frustrating. Yeah. August 11th, 1983, the residents voted yes to relocation, and $42 million in federal reserves was set aside to buy out the land. Still, though, not everyone wanted to leave. In 1990, there were still about 60 residents, and they were fighting to keep the town alive, even as buildings were being torn down and the state declared eminent domain on the town in 1992 which essentially turned the last residents into squatters in their own houses. Now, they tried to have it overturned, didn't go their way. In 2002, the zip code was revoked from the town within the postal system. And eventually, the last remaining residents did end up winning the right to stay within their homes. But there were certain conditions that they are not allowed to sell them or will them to anyone upon death. And that they're not allowed to seek medical help for... Burns, broken bones, inhalation. It's just, oh my gosh. Because, I mean, I know that's horrible for me as a clinician to say. It just, it really chaps my heart when, you know, what about my rights? Well, you know what? You have the right not to burden the system with your stupidity. How about that, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> I want to stay. I want to breathe in all this stuff. I want my house to go, then die. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to. Or then again, on the other hand, you got to go somehow. May as well be fire and brimstone. Get biblical with it. I just, I don't get it. You know, I understand, you know, you've got history. You've got some nostalgia or whatever. But holy cow, is it really Well, take some pictures. No, take some pictures and get the hell out. Yeah. I don't pack your stuff. You know, have one last glance around. And hopefully as you're running away, the earth isn't falling beneath <laughs> your feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in 2010, the census noted that there were 10 residents. And in 2018, there were six. There's still people there. There's still people there, you guys. Centralia became a notable tourist spot because people wanted to see the ghost town. They wanted to see the destruction, the evidence of the fires burning. A stretch of the highway that had partially crumbled due to the fires and substance was shut down. And it became the Graffiti Highway, which probably shows up on a lot of those 
you know, off the beaten path kind of touristy things. But now it's covered in dirt. Last year, they decided they had enough of this. And it was also a pretty big safety issue. So that highway is gone, you guys. It is. It has been buried. It is no more. What happens now? They just let the fire burn. It's monitored monthly by the state to keep track of the spread of the fire and the temperature. And the fire is going to burn for at least another 100 years. Some people say up to another 250 years. It's hard to tell because they don't know how much coal is underground there. And in the meantime, it's releasing tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's, that's cool. This is fine. Now, scientists are studying the landscape, finding out how the heat changes the environment. There's a neat little video in the sources that you can watch. It explains how microbes are being found living in the heated soil. They're similar to microbes that are found living in other areas with extreme temperatures, but they aren't exactly the same and they can't classify them yet. It's just interesting to see how, you know, I mean, it's like after a volcano, it's like after Chernobyl, after crazy things happen on the earth, how to quote Dr. Ian Malcolm, life finds a way. (laughs) Oh, please let there be dinosaurs underneath Centralia or Middle Earth or again, I'll take hail, just something interesting. Well, I mean, the microbes are interesting. Yay, science. And back to that start, you guys, coal fires are burning all around the world. There are long burning fires in India, China, South Africa, as a few examples from science.com. I'm just going to read this to you. China's 3,106 mile coal mining belt is notorious for its seam fires. So is India, where unwanted fires have claimed around 41 million tons of coal since 1918. The issue is more prevalent in areas where coal is extracted in the past with limited efforts to ensure that the hole left after extraction was filled up. There are fires that are actually ancient fires that are burning. There's fire in the Canadian Arctic and even in Australia. In Australia, you can find the Burning Mountain, which is the oldest known coal fire and has actually burned for 6,000 years. So there you go, you guys. Our earth is on fire. And it's all because of something we technically don't need anymore. Technology has advanced and we don't need coal anymore. Sorry, we just don't. It's true. It's a non-renewable source, you guys. Once yeah. it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. There's no point. Just get some anthracite. Keep it as a pretty shiny rock in your rock collection. You don't need to burn it. You don't need to, you know, set anything on fire. It's we, okay. Yeah, we can even make diamonds that are, they're indistinguishable from quote unquote, real diamonds. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just, you don't, we don't need coal anymore. We really don't. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about the Centralia fire is that no one actually died in the fire. So I guess, yay on that non-existent body count. But, you know, it, it just destroyed the town and, I, and I assure the environment you, and all the other stuff that went along with it. So, And I, I assure you, there's, at a minimum, there's pulmonary issues. There's, I mean, shit like this, prolonged exposure to things such as this, whether it's, I mean, it's all toxic. I was about to say like toxic waste, like, you know, you hear the the barrels of factory waste you see floating down the river that ultimately ends up as part of the water supply and stuff like that. So you don't necessarily have to ingest something. It very much alters you breathing in consistently, even if you're not getting a headache, even if you're not feeling woozy and it I just so they are irreparably damaged I mean possibly down so deep that it's been passed on to children like yeah. it's 
Oh, yeah. And I didn't even, I mean, there's so much that could be talked about just in the process of coal mining and everything like that, that I didn't even get into like the coal waste and the issues of all of the other rock that was removed and what else was exposed into the environment. And uh, yeah, it's, (laughs) that's, that's a whole different episode, whole different type of podcast that could go into that. But there's just not a lot of, of good stuff there. It's just not going to treat your body well. Not to mention miners and black lung, fires aside, yeah. Yeah. And all this money and all this effort later, all they had to do was line the pit. That's all they had to do. All they had to do was line the pit. Unbelievable. You gotta line your pits, folks. Yep. You know, when we first talked about the subject for this episode and you were talking about the the two options here. Uh Uh-huh. I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I, I get how they're similar, but it wasn't until like we both had our stories that I realized how similar it was. Yeah, I didn't know the details about either of them, but I knew enough to know that there was human error at somewhere along the way that it this did not just this wasn't an oopsie doodle like there wasn't a lightning strike. There wasn't a volcanic eruption. There wasn't an earthquake there. What you know what I'm saying? Like this wasn't a tornado. This wasn't. Yeah. I, so I knew that much, but yeah, I'm with you. I, I was so angry <laughs> by the time, and now I'm pissed off again because people are so stupid. Just do it right the first time. Just do it right the first time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. It was, it was interesting and very disheartening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, it. We, we, if we leave you with anything, we hope it's um, being pissed off. <laughs> do hey, it right the first time. Damn, do it. It, damn it. That's it. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Th- there's nothing. I, I am, I am just, go- I'm gobsmacked at the extent of human. What's the word I'm looking for? It's beyond stupidity. It's because stupidity, to say stupid implies that someone can be taught. This is deeper than that. I think it's, I think it's kind of, and it's not even like willful ignorance, you know, because I mean, these people, they kind of knew, they knew what needed to be done and they didn't. They knew. Exactly. So it's, it's defiance. It's this, do you know what? Okay. So in psychology, and it's typically applied to the younger of our population, usually teenagers, early 20s, like that ballpark. And it's that whole preponderance for risk-taking behavior, and it's called the personal fable. So even if, let's say, a friend of yours drinks and gets killed in a drunk driving-related car accident, the personal fable that, because, and we talked about in the, um, not too long ago in the episode about Phineas Gage, how the frontal lobes aren't fully developed until sometimes into your 30s. Mm-hmm. And so they literally do not have the capability. They can be kind of pushed into it and through kind of training and repetition, even, but they don't, they're not capable of quite understanding it. And it's that personal fable of, but it won't happen to me. Mm-hmm. E- either they think they know better or they think they're smarter or they think they're more savvy for whatever reason, or no, no, I come from a better family. I come, you know, insert whatever situation you want. They keep coming up with all these reasons. It won't happen to me. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew somebody who drank too much and died in a car wreck, I can hold my liquor better, so I'm okay to drive. It's not going to happen to me. Yes, it can. 
Yes, it can. You are not special. You are not a special snowflake. It can very much happen to you, Mm -hmm. but they don't get it. And so it's almost like these grown-ass people had that mentality, that personal fable of, well, eh, but that won't happen here in this situation. Right. This fire is not that bad. This tank is, you know, it's still standing. There's fires everywhere, you know. (laughs) Yeah. It was just so frustrating. And to know that, like, the first guy that offered the help that was like, yeah, 175 bucks. And now here it is. It's just, I don't, I don't know if you could calculate, really, the, the amount of damage. Oh, yeah. Irreparable harm. Absolutely. Irreparable harm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's still, that there are still people living in Centralia blows my mind. They don't even have a damn zip code. And the roads are falling apart. So my assumption is they have a P.O. box in whatever the next decently sized city or town is closest. They'd have to. Nobody's bringing mail to them, right? So they're and and they're having to travel a decent bit. I mean, they they have no stores. They have no gas station. Right. They have no no nothing. Like, no nothing. They have nothing. It's literally just their home. And... They're, they're being pride. stubborn mules. Yeah, it's their <laughs> pride. They're being stubborn and risking their lives unnecessarily. So that's mm-hmm. a whole other psychological road to go down that we're not going to because we're ending the episode. That is a lie. There is one last thing we forgot to mention because we were distracted by being irritated. If you did not know, Centralia also gained some fame by being a setting for Silent Hill, a movie based on the popular game series. Not going to get into the weeds with this, but I am bringing it up for a very good reason. One that I think you'll get a real kick out of. So, the basic plot of Silent Hill, all the iterations, is that somebody has lost someone dear to them, and the person learns, via whatever mechanism of the plot, that their loved one just might be in Silent Hill. Bottom line is that Silent Hill was this cozy little American northeastern town that got hit by disaster. Now it's abandoned, or at least supposed to be, and monstery things ensue, several of which are really neat and creepy. Okay, game first came out in 1999, many sequels come along, and fast forward to 2014. At a gaming convention where developers will often announce upcoming games, a little teaser trailer from Silent Hill's parent company comes up, catches everybody off guard, there's not been a peep of this, any indication that a new installment was coming. Turns out, the company had partnered up to crank out a little something called Silent Hills and involved our Norman Reedus, who you may know from The Walking Dead, and there's behind-the-scenes involvement from Guillermo del Toro, who is a phenomenal writer and director, won an Oscar, etc., etc., etc. We are not going to talk about the Fish movie. That was something else. Who boy. <clears throat> Anyhow, this is huge. And then they're all P.S. kids. Here's a sample of the game, a demo, if you will. Knock yourselves out. Said demo went on to, no pun intended, catch fire. It was downloaded like over a million times. It was called PT, short for playable teaser. So that's super vague, but they're keeping up the mystery. I dig it. It's not just the basics, though. It's got complexity to it. It actually takes a while to get through, and not everybody caught all the little hidden things or were able to get to the end. It's excellent is the point, and it looks really great too. It's blowing away what the Silent Hill games have looked like thus far. People are having come-aparts. They're so excited. And it got canceled. Who knows what happened? Shit fell through behind the scenes, and that's that. Why am I telling you all this? Because I have a jewel of a present for you. 
No, not the game. PT has long been unavailable, but I have the next best thing. So, if you don't know, there's lots of people who will play games on YouTube or stream them on Twitch and the like, and provided the host is entertaining, they don't have to be fantastic at playing games necessarily, but provided the person or the person and their friends have great personalities, these can be a blast to watch. Not even watch. There are some who I'll often have on in the background because it has a podcast feel. They aren't always talking about the game. The game is kind of the setup for fun conversation. There are those out there who do focus solely on games. Some do step-by-step walkthroughs. Point is, there's something for everybody. Even if none of what I have said appeals to you, I need you to trust me. I'm linking for you in show notes one of the funniest things I have ever seen. Somehow, way back when, my YouTube algorithm suggested to me a certain playthrough of PT. It was a group of friends who individually do their own gaming things, but for this, they combined forces. If I recall, one or two of them had messed with it a bit and wanted to show the other guys and my stars what a roller coaster. There's one guy in particular whose reaction is a joy to behold. I laughed so hard in parts of these videos that I cried. They did it in three parts. I think they're around a half hour each. So if you need something to watch and there's just nothing appealing to you, I implore you to give this a whirl. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And if you do enjoy it, let us know so that we can laugh about it with you. Heck, I may go watch it again when I'm done editing. That's it. Keep listening. Like we say, you can write in, tell us what else you'd like to hear about. We've always got ideas in our folder and we've got some good stuff coming up. But yeah, as always, we want to hear from you. And if you happen to live in Centralia, sweet baby Jeebus, get out. Get out. Leave. What is wrong with you? My God. (laughs) It, just go to the next town over. You're already going there to get your mail and your groceries. Just Your just entire stay. life. Yes, your entire life is in that other town. Just stay. Stay. <laughs> All right, I think we need to stop here. This is where the catchphrase goes. That's right. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at our blog, along with any other supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Just head over to youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com and in the menu, click on show notes. We're also on Twitter at YTMTU Podcast and on Instagram at You Totally Made That Up. You can contact us at any of those places and you can also email us. That address is you totally made that up at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, whether it's ideas for episodes, your own personal or family stories, telling us what we can do better, and telling us what we should keep on doing. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider taking a moment to rate and review on your platform of choice. Or if you know someone who may like our content, send them our way. We're so grateful for our listeners and would love to add even more people to our wild podcast family. 